Hello, and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 21st episode of the Not A Cast entitled A Giant at the End of the World, an analysis of a Game of Thrones Tyrion 3, in which Tyrion makes one promise he won't keep and another that he will. This episode is brought to you by all of our Lords Commander, Mark N., Timothy W., Hayden J., and our newest Lord Commander, Wolfman Zack, otherwise known as the Weed Detective. Thank you, gentlemen, very, very much, and welcome, Wolfman, to our little show and our little party. Love you, buddy. Thanks for contributing, and thanks, as always, to the rest of you. Absolutely. And for, as we say in all podcasts, our spoiler warning, we will be talking about all published books, the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. So as we talk about in most every podcast these days, we have some questions from some of our fine patrons. And just as a very, very quick reminder, if you contribute $10 or more to our Patreon a month, you have the ability to ask us a question and we will answer it here on the show. So our first question comes from Sir Eli of the Bay Area who asks, I had a quick question. I wanted to throw your way for potential answering on the podcast. I've been thinking a lot about the ways things could have gone differently in the Song of Ice and Fire universe and was wondering how you think King Robert, King Stannis, and the false traitors King Renly would have each handled the situation with Cersei and the bastard children they had had, had they learned of it, and in the case of Stannis and Renly, come to the full, come to full power over Westeros. What got me thinking about this was Sir Davos and his fingers as just punishment and what Stannis would have considered a just punishment, not only for Cersei, but also for the three children who have no fault in the matter whatsoever. Would love your thoughts, Amen, brothers. Well, that's uh, that's a pretty good question. I think we're going to disagree a little bit on it, but I'm going to let you have the first word on it because you deserve the first word because I've been talking too much anyways. Well, thank you, brother. Certainly the question of how to handle Cersei's children is essentially a dramatic one. It comes up and kind of becomes the core of Ned Stark's story in the Game of Thrones is his attempts to save Cersei's children from Robert's wrath. I think we can probably agree that Robert would kill them all. Yes. That's uh, that's hard to dispute Ned's point on that, given not only that Robert orders Daenerys' death, but also does it with this intense, violent, uncontrollable wrath and talks about Rhaegar much the same way. <laughs> so I, th- I think it would, it would apply easily to the children he would find that are not his. Yeah. Uh, Renly... We'll end with Stannis because I think that's where we disagree. Yes. Renly, given how much Renly thinks of himself as a young Robert, I feel like he would not want to take direct responsibility for it and would want someone to do it by proxy. He would want an equivalent of Tywin. Yes. Which I guess in his case would be Mace uh, right. to do it for him and to do it in such a way that Renly could disavow response, direct responsibility. Yeah. And wash his hands of it later, because just like Robert, as Tywin says, Renly would not want to think of himself as a man who kills children. I mean, Renly does order the death of Daenerys without a second yeah. thought, so I don't think he would have a moral objection to it. I think he would have a PR objection to it. Yes. You know, the the glorious, uh, young, perfect King Renly uh, starting off his, his domain the same way Robert did by stepping on dead children. I think even, even given the accusation and truth that all three of them are bastards born of incest. I think he would prefer not, not to have that direct blood in his hands. Yeah. Now, Stannis, much as we both love Stannis, <laughs> uh, he's, got, he's got the line in the Storm of Swords, Davos for Storm of Swords, when he's talking about Cersei. Uh, quote, The Lannister woman gave him horns and made a motley fool, made a motley fool of him. 
She may have murdered him as well as she murdered John Aaron and Ned Stark. Neither of which are true for the record. <laughs> for such crimes, there must be justice. Starting with Cersei and her abominations. But only starting. I mean to scour that court clean. <laughs> so for me, uh, you know, he could be talking about just, uh, you know, dispatching Tommen and Marcella off to the Faith, sending them overseas. Uh, but when you put that together with the, like, intense fury with which he talks about the notion of Shireen being wed to Tommen... In, uh, also in in this chapter, uh, the same chapter, Storm of Swords, Davos Four, uh, not not like you know, he would consider it as part of a peace deal, but that it's it's an absolute affront to his dignity. To me, all that suggests that he, if he had won the Battle of Blackwater, uh, he would have killed not only Joffrey. Well, Marcella's not there. He would have killed not only Joffrey, but Tommen, and that he would have tried to arrange for the death of Marcella. Not something that's pleasant to contemplate, but I lean towards that being the case. What do you think, sir? It's a really difficult question because I feel strongly that you make a good case for the fact that Stannis might have ordered the death of Tommen had he got his hands on him. The only counterpoint I would have is that when we get to A Storm of Swords, and Stannis finds out about Gilly and about her child and that her child was the son of Craster. He says he calls them an abomination again, but says, you know, this is not King's Landing. I will not suffer such abominations here. This is not King's Landing. I'm, I'm mangling the quote. I, I know because I don't remember off the top of my head. But the same juncture, even though he issues harsh words against Gilly's child, he doesn't order the child's death either. And, and the, the other thing that kind of comes out is that a lot of the Night's Watchmen and the people who are close to John and the Wildlings suspect that Stannis is going to be burning Gilly's child or burning Mance's son. I think that's a, that's a dynamic that gets explored at the end of A Storm of Swords and at the early parts of A Dance with Dragons. But I don't see evidence for Stannis actually doing that early on. Now, there is a difference in that the children that are born of Cersei and Jaime are incestuous and they are the ones who are blocking Stannis from his rightful throne. So there's a potential that, you know, as usurpers, I, I can see Stannis executing them as usurpers as opposed to products born of incest. And I do wonder if that's a distinction without a difference in this case, because it, their uh, usurpation of Stannis is directly related to their incestuous um, nature. Right. So, but at the same time, I, I don't know. I, 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 I will. I want to like stick up for Stannis, but you make a compelling case that maybe my he wouldn't that he would order their deaths. I could see him ordering the death of Joffrey at the very least. Tommen isn't a king yet in a clash of kings when the Battle of the Blackwater takes place. So maybe there's a case for him sparing Tommen since he isn't a direct threat, and especially if they expose the incest to all of the realm, then he's discredited forever and ever. But at the same time, there might be a strong popular feeling and opinion that Tommen should be executed for his incest. Now, that's something that, you know, you can imagine the faith potentially wanting Stannis to do if Stannis is trying to make inroads with the faith post Battle of the Blackwater, and he's having to deal with a realm mostly made of people who do not believe in Rulor. But but I don't know. Uh, I want, to, I want to think that maybe Marcella and Tommen would be spared. And maybe the part of it, too, is that these are good kids for the most part. They're not Joffreys. They're not Cersei's. They're not Roberts. Um, they're not really even Jamie. They're actually sweet, good kids. And I would be – it's a damn shame if, 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 if Stannis would kill them. But the problem is that they're going to die anyways. So uh, I don't know. It's, if it's <laughs> This is true. They certainly are. But 
the way Stannis talks about them as like the boy Tom and the girl Marcella, referring to them as Cersei's abominations, it does remind me somewhat of how he, as he starts to harden his heart against Edric Storm and make the decision to kill him, he stops referring to him by name. Hmm. Something that Davos picks up on immediately. It's just my brother's bastard, right. my nephew, the boy. It's never Edric Storm because he's trying to <clears throat> detach himself emotionally from the consequences of what he's deciding to do. And I fear he might be doing the same for Tommen and Marcella in that regard. He might be trying to preemptively prepare himself to do it. I think Davos would certainly argue against it. I mean, the problem is when the problem is that Stannis is mostly surrounded by assholes except for Davos. So <laughs> true. He, he, he'd have to make the case strongly. And who knows, that you know, this would be a scenario in which the Edric Storm debate never happens. Right. Because Stannis has triumphed at the Blackwater. So maybe the version of that we get is Davos smuggles Tommen and Marcella out. Yeah, yeah, that's instead true. Instead of Davos smuggling Edric Storm out, which that would be quite the kerfuffle because then he's smuggled out much more high-value targets. And he's done so presumably only as a knight instead of Hand of the King. Although, who knows, maybe Stannis would have named Davos Hand at this point anyway. Yeah. So yeah, that's it's 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 an interesting situation to consider. Stannis winning at the Blackwater is an interesting AU for any variety of reasons. Oh yeah, but uh, I think I think uh, something else we we can agree on is that he would have been a considerably lesser king at that point than he is now. I agree. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Certainly after going through the crucible of a storm of swords, Absolutely. he still would have been better than the false traitorous King Renly, as Sir Eli puts it. But <laughs> that's great, man. Like not that, quite. That phrasing is awesome. Spot on. Precisely. It should be. It should be canonical. Yes. So thank you, Sir Eli, for your question. Yeah. Thanks. Our next question comes from Sir Andrew B., who asks, Gentlemen, you're brilliant. The show is brilliant. Keep it up. Thank you. Hush, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Such flattery will go right to our heads. <laughs> no, thank you much. Quick follow-up on your Thorn villain chat. Would you care to talk about his brief political alliance with Geno Slint? Hmm. It makes sense that they'd bond over a hatred of Tyrion, but if the reason we're given for his attitude is the injustice of him being sent north for serving the crown during Robert's Rebellion... Wouldn't that put him at odds with Slint, a man who loves to tout his Lannister connections? Unless it's just a matter of political expediency upon his return to a leaderless wall, which could go towards fleshing out why he acts as he does when John moves to execute Slint and dance. Just something to chew on. Also, being from Kentucky, I think Jeff should really let the twang shine on his craster voice. No need to hold back. So you hear it here first, <laughs> first folks. Uh, when we get to John 3 of Clash of Kings... And Sam to a storm of swords, the two chapters set in Crestor's Keep. I'm just going to sit back and let Jeff twang. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess being from south of the Mason-Dixon line, if only barely, I, I, I get the the opportunity to continue to do the Craster voice. And I've been to West Virginia. I actually did a vacation there a couple years ago. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a He's great. He's been there, folks. He's allowed. It's, right, he exactly. exactly. It's, it's totally allowed. But, you know, in all seriousness, it is a great state. I do it, I enjoyed all the times I've been in West Virginia. But I do think the accent is totally... In keeping with who Craster is as a character and who George R. R. Martin has built him out to be, for sure. Um, but yeah, so this is the. So, what do you make of this question, sir? Oh, uh, what's the deal with the Slint Thorn Alliance? I think that he answers it in his quote, unless it's a matter of political expediency upon his return to a leaderless wall, which would go towards fleshing out why he acts as he does when John moves to execute Slint and Dance. Man, that's a better answer than I could probably give. I, I don't think there's really much to expand on there. I do think it's interesting that you do have these characters making an alliance here. But, you know, at the same time, that's something we see throughout the first five books in A Song of Ice and Fire, where you have houses like Tyrell and Lannister making an alliance, even though they were technically opponents during Robert's Rebellion. And you also have folks like the 
the Arons who are joining up with essentially the Lannisters, for lack of a better, they basically stay out of the war at the behest of of Littlefinger and the Crown. That just is kind of what happens. Is it's what we see in Janos and Thorns Alliance is a microcosm of the greater sense that in the books that alliances are being are shifting, are being made and unmade quickly as events on the ground change and as circumstances change. So in the case of Janos and Janos and Sir Alistair joining together, they're joining together because they they see the opportunity is present for them at the wall to seize power and to, of course, um, take on Jon Snow, who they both view as uh, someone who's unworthy of, of life and unworthy of any respect whatsoever. And that, of course, has some ramifications in Jon too, where we have Jon ordering a block to be fetched on behalf of of Janos, of a traitorous, murderous, and of course, disobedient and rebellious Janos Slint. So I, I think that's, like I said, I think it's a microcosm and I think that's a uh, the way to look at it. I think you made a great answer, uh, Sir Andrew. Yes, I agree that it uh, speaks to a larger kind of social political problem in Westeros. There's the line from Sir Hyle Hunt about Renly, uh, no one cares, no one remembers. And that speaks to a general lack of the best parts of loyalty and leadership in Westeros, especially over the past generation or so. And I think you, you see in both Thorn and Slint that they're not so much loyal to any positive affirmative vision so much as to ambition and avarice and negative visions, to things they hate more than anything else. And I think there's an alliance of convenience in that Slint brings his own men, Slint brings a reputation of leadership, utterly corrupt and shallow leadership, as Stannis points out, but it's enough to sway a few uh, voters among the Night's Watch into backing him. Whereas Thorne brings local knowledge, local allies, uh, an ability to sway other members of the Night's Watch. There's that scene in, I believe it's John's 12th, the Storm of Swords chapter, the final chapter, where he overhears Thorne and Bowen Marsh talking to, who is it, Elfo Yarwick, the first builder, trying to convince him to back Slint in, the, in his candidacy for Lord Commandership. So it's, I think it works on a number of levels. It's a microcosm, as you say. It's a kind of natural logistical alliance. And yes, they both hate Tyrion and Janos. Ha- Janos Lynn hates Jon for reasons which aren't really adequately defined for me. I don't really get why Janos hates Ned. Like, yeah, Ned tried to bribe him with a little finger, but Littlefinger got to him first. I don't know why Slint resents Ned and thus John in the same way he resents Tyrion like Ned didn't do anything to him Slint just kind of stabbed him in the back so that emotion that emotional quality never really made sense but yeah I think Slint and Thorne have any number of reasons to work together none of which are particularly depthful which as Sir Andrew said is why Thorne steps aside and lets John execute Slint without really a second thought yeah come and dance with dragons yeah absolutely so Something, again, to keep an eye on is that these shifting alliances and people who wouldn't normally be together are actually going to be together and progressing forward through the series in their villainous or heroic ways, as we're going to find out. Because another thing that we're going to see in an upcoming John chapter is a character like Jon Snow becoming a ally and friend to Samuel Tarly when both of their fathers, or in Jon's case, his quote-unquote father, were in uh, direct opposition to each other during Robert's Rebellion. True. But yeah. So thank you, everyone, for your questions this week. Uh, Next week, I think we are going to be doing some iTunes reviews. We'll try and pick the best of the best coming out. So if you guys haven't already and you're interested in doing an iTunes review, feel free to leave us a good one. Um, The funnier, the better, in in our opinion. I think we'll we'll take funny over anything else. 
So if you do leave us an iTunes review, all, all kidding aside, it does help us to help folks to find the podcast. So if you want to help folks join in our fun, we'd appreciate it. And also for our Patreon as well, as you guys have probably already heard who are patrons, our special Patreon episode on Stannis Baratheon and his fate is now available on patreon.com forward slash not a cast ASOIF for our $5 and above patrons. We really appreciate all of you guys and your support for us. And we hope that you guys enjoyed our Stannis episode. We're recording this before the episode is out. So we're, uh, we'll have to see, uh, we'll, we'll judge reactions um, probably in our next episode on, on Arya for sure. Yes, indeed. We always enjoy talking about Stannis. So that's going to be us at our most unbearable. <laughs> we hope you appreciate it. Yes, 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 it is. So thanks again for the questions. Rate us on iTunes and we will maybe feature your review next week. But now we're going to be talking about Tyrion Lannister and his time at the Wall with the Watch and the Watch Command and with Jon Snow. And this is A Game of Thrones, Tyrion 3. Tyrion Lannister enjoys a fine meal with the leadership of the Night's Watch to the ostensible chagrin of Lord Commander Mormont, who asks Tyrion if he needs to leave so soon. Tyrion states that his brother Jaime will wonder if Tyrion has taken the black. We have need of men of your sort, Tyrion, Mormont replies. Cunning men. Well, Tyrion will then gather up the dwarves from Westeros and send them to the wall if needs be. Everybody laughs. Back to the important thing. Food. It's Tyrion's last meal, and it's a feast. Succulent snow crabs, baby. Yum. They just arrived this morning from Eastwatch by the sea, packed in snow. It's a nice meal and nice company, except for Sir Alistair Thorne, who accuses Tyrion of mocking the Night's Watch and their noble purpose, with this offer to find dwarves to send to the wall. No, Tyrion isn't mocking the Watch. Only Sir Alistair. Nervous laughter emerges from the other men of the Night's Watch, but a murderous rage follows from Sir Alistair, who immediately challenges Tyrion to a duel in the castle courtyard. And why would Tyrion go there? The crabs are here. Come and make your japes with steel in your hand, Sir Alistair thunders, rising from the table. Tyrion already has steel in his hand, his crab fork, and he quote-unquote duels Sir Alistair by jumping up on the table and poking with the crab fork. Everyone is laughing except for Sir Alistair, who flees the room. When the night is gone, the meal resumes with Tyrion taking Alistair's portion. Mormont gently rebukes Tyrion for being too cruel with Alistair, but Tyrion replies that Alistair is a humorless dullard. Alistair really shouldn't be instructing the new recruits either. He should be shoveling shit. He's a bad, bad drill instructor. And I agree. Not an unfair accusation, according to Mormont, but one that Mormont dismisses as well. Alistair is a sworn knight and fought bravely at King's Landing, but on the wrong side, as Sir Jeremy Riker replies. Sir Jeremy would know. He was on the battlements in the city wall with Sir Alistair. You see, Jeremy and Alistair arrived at Castle Black at the same time, having been given the choice of having their heads mounted on spikes by Tywin Lannister or taking the Black. The choice seemed like a pretty easy one, and I agree. Again, Tyrion remarks that he's sure that Riker's head would have been a noble one to sit above the King's Gate at King's Landing. Lord Commander Mormont now wonders whether Tyrion is mocking them. We all need to be mocked from time to time, Lord Mormont, lest we take ourselves too seriously. They drink more, Riker remarks that Tyrion has a great thirst for a small man, and then our favorite character at the wall, right? Yeah, I think I can speak for you on this one, right, Emmett? Him and Donal Noir in a, a dead heat. Yeah, I would say so. So, our favorite character at the wall, besides Donal Noir, speaks up. Oh, I think Lord Tyrion is quite a large man. I think he is a giant come among us here at the end of the world. It's goddamn Maester Aemon, and he has entered the fucking game. Tyrion is taken back at being called a giant and says that he's been seldom called one. Nonetheless, I think it's true, Aemon replies. Tyrion is stunned, almost really too much for words. He thanks Aemon, calling him kind. Aemon smiles, replying that, I have been called many things, my lord, but kind is seldom one of them. Everyone laughs, eats, 
and drinks. We pick up a few hours later with Mormont and Tyrion alone in the front of a fireplace drinking whiskey, or in the Song of Ice and Fire parlance, cups of mulled spirits. Mormont offers to send an honor guard south to Tyrion, at least as far as Winterfell. Tyrion declines. He has his own guard, and Yorn is coming as well. But if Mormont is so inclined, how about letting Jon Snow come with Tyrion? He could see his family, you know? That'd be nice, right? Eh, not really much of a good idea, Tyrion. Jon's supposed to be embracing his new brothers. If he hangs out with his family, he may have second thoughts about joining the Watch. And boy, do they need every man at the wall. Things are getting bad here. Mormont estimates that the entire strength of the Night's Watch is below a thousand men. 600 at Castle Black, 200 at the Shadow Tower, and then fewer at 200 at East Watch by the Sea. That's three men for every mile of a 300 mile wall. Three and a third, Tyrion corrects, yawning. Mormont doesn't seem to hear and talks about sending Benjen Stark in search for Waymar Royce, concluding that he was a fool for sending a green boy, that's Waymar, out on his first place and then having to send Benjen Stark after him. But now Benjen is missing, and who will he send after him? Pretty daunting question. And it gets worse for the Night's Watch. Only a third of the current thousand or so men are rangers. It's now sullen boys and tired men. Only 20 outside of the High Command can read. Fewer than that who can think, plan, or lead. Hey, wait a minute. Isn't there someone who fulfills all these criteria? A little bit more on that later. All in all, they're not solidifying the defenses of the wall. They're surviving, and that's really all that they're doing at this point. Tyrion realizes that Mormont is deathly serious, and he promises that he'll bring the Lord Commander's concerns to the king, his brother, and his father. But he knows that it won't do any good. Robert would ignore him, Tywin would ask if Tyrion has gone crazy, and Jaime would only laugh. The discussion shifts to winter. Tyrion has seen eight or nine short winters, but Mormont is convinced that the next winter is coming, and it won't be a short one. It's been a long summer, and long summers mean longer winters. Maybe it's the great summer at hand, Tyrion jokes, but Mormon remains in no joking mood. As he says, I tell you, my lord, the darkness is coming. There are wild things in the woods, direwolves and mammoths and snow bears the size of arcs. And I have seen darker shapes in my dreams. The fisher folk near Eastwatch have glimpsed white walkers on the shore. Oh boy. Yeah, Tyrion thinks it's the usual fisher folk tales like the ones he heard growing up at Lannisport, Merlings and such, but that's not all. Mormont has reports from the Shadow Tower of the Mountain Folk fleeing south and crossing the wall, running from something. But running from what? Well, the others, as we know. But Mormont fears that the long night is about to fall, and only the Night's Watch will stand between the realm and the darkness that sweeps from the north. The gods help us if we are not ready. The gods help me if I do not get some sleep, Tyrion replies. So Tyrion exits and walks outside for his chambers until he glimpses the wall, and a madness overtakes him. He wants to see the world from the top of the wall one last time. So, he heads over to the iron cage, enters it, yanks on the bell, and waits. He waits so long he thinks they've forgotten him. But at long last, the cage begins moving up the wall. When Tyrion reaches the top of the wall, he explains his purpose to the watchman. He wants a last look. Look all you want. Just have a care you don't fall off, little man. The old bear would have our hides. So, Tyrion treads carefully, but he doesn't really need to. The wall is as wide as the king's road, and the watchmen lay gravel on it to prevent slippage. Tyrion walks west for no particular reason, passing a broken catapult, and runs into none other than Jon Snow. You see, Jon is standing watch armed with a heavy spear and war horn, and he's drawn his watch again, because Sir Alistair wants to exhaust him in hopes that he'll fall asleep in the training yard. Jon reports that his own training of his fellow recruits is going well, with the boys making improvements, and then the bastard asks the dwarf if he'd like to walk the mile of the wall with him that he has to walk. Tyrion agrees, as long as they walk slowly. Tyrion reports that he's leaving in the morning. Jon knows, and seems kind of sad about it. Tyrion attempts to cheer Jon by telling him that he'll be stopping by Winterfell and asks if there's any message Jon wants to convey. Jon says, Tell Rob that I am going to command the Night's Watch and keep him safe so that he might take up needlework with the girls and have Micken melt down his sword for horseshoes. Tyrion laughs and declines to give such a message, and Jon gets a bit more serious. 
Tell Rickon that he can have all my things while I'm away. He doesn't know what to say to Bran, though, but he asks Tyrion if he can help him in some way. Tyrion agrees to perform whatever small help he can. And then in a really cool, kind of touching moment, Jon extends his hand to Tyrion, saying, Friend? And Tyrion says that most of his kin are bastards, but Jon's the first bastard Tyrion's had to friend. That's a cool moment. I like that moment a lot. They walk on with Tyrion observing that the woods are about a half mile north of the wall and how that was intentional on the Night's Watch part. But beyond them, the haunted forest was there. And that sight kind of chills Tyrion. He can almost believe that the others are out there. Jon is observing too. He tells Tyrion that the first night he was up here, he was sure that Benjen Stark would return. But he didn't. And he hasn't been back at all. And if Benjen doesn't come back, Jon and Ghost would go out to find him in the haunted forest. Tyrion believes Jon, but he has a shivering thought. And who will go out to find you? And that's the conclusion to A Game of Thrones Tyrion 3. A chapter that I kind of feel like seems like two chapters to me, or at least two separate stories that Martin does kind of tie together at the end, but they are a bit divided in terms of a chapter. What would you say to that? Yes, I think that's true. The two dialogue scenes that form the heart of this chapter, Tyrion with the old bear and then Tyrion with Jon Snow, feel like somewhat unconnected, if individually strong, episodes. This chapter's more of a mood piece than anything else. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really have the exquisite structure that Jon 3 has, where you can sense the pieces locking into place for Jon's character, and you can immediately intuit, even your first time through, how this is going to have a huge impact on Jon's story later, even though you don't know the specifics then. This is more about kind of atmosphere and mood than anything else. If... if John 3 was all about what the Night's Watch looks like to the newcomers. The first half of Tyrion 3, where he's dicing, drinking, dining, and eventually discussing with the officers, that taps into how the old guard is feeling, and while it's not altogether hopeless, it's certainly a grim and gloomy picture. Yeah. This is where we get into what turns out to be one of the most prominent subjects in the Song of Ice and Fire, which is the institutional weaknesses of the Night's Watch, an institution that humanity really, really, really needs to be as strong as possible. <laughs> yes. And it's just not. And you can see that immediately in this chapter with Tyrion's confrontation with Sir Alistair Thorne. This time through the chapter, it felt more and more to me like a microcosm of what's going on with the Night's Watch and a sense of the problems they're facing as an institution. Tyrion obviously is being kind of an asshole here because he's Tyrion, but he's still a relatively influential outsider. He can't save the Night's Watch, but as he pointed out to Alistair in John 3, he can certainly get in the way. Yes. He can act as an obstacle to the Night's Watch getting recruits and resources from court. And Alistair is still too proud and thin-skinned to play nice with him. His, his, his honor, his shallow perception of his own honor means more to him than the Night's Watch as a whole. The fact that he challenges Tyrion to duel is just absurd. It reminded me of the moment later in the book, in the Eyrie, where Servardus Egan refuses to, to duel Tyrion because that would just be absurd and <laughs> shameful and over in an instant and would be more of a slaughter than a duel. Yeah. Alistair is not only rejects that perspective, he's the one who instigates the, the duel. So that gets at another weak spot within the Night's Watch, which is this sort of blade and bravado attitude, which whatever you feel about it in the abstract is extremely inappropriate for the Night's Watch. Mm-hmm. Something we were talking about a little bit before we started recording is that the Night's Watch has this attitude where they act as though they are knights or they're supposed to be a unit of offensive cavalry, when primarily what they should be are archers yes. and defensive units and watchmen. That's their job. The, the fundamental strength of the Night's Watch is not in their swords. It's not even in their discipline. It's the wall, the height of the wall. Everything they should be doing should be to take advantage of that. And as Mormon gets into a little later, at, at this point, the Night's Watch has become so weak for a variety of reasons that they're not doing that. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Mormon's solution of the Great Ranging really only exacerbates all those problems. And you can see that immediately in Sir Alistair's reaction to Tyrion and his uh, absurd challenge <laughs> to duel. 
Tyrion goes on to call out his unfitness for the position, telling the rest of the officers, Chip the ice off your eyes, my good lords. Sir Alistair Thorne should be mucking at your stables, not drilling your young warriors. The specific imagery used, chip the ice off your eyes, there is this association of Sir Alistair being in his position with the coming of the others. It's as though Martin is saying, keeping a guy like Alistair Thorne in a position of influential authority is bringing on the ice. It's bringing on the winter. It's going to weaken the Night's Watch for for when the others arrive. And Mormont's response gets at a a real deep problem with the Night's Watch, as we're going to get into a little later in the episode, which is the persistence of the class structure in a supposedly class-blind institution. Yeah. Mormon's response is, quote, Sir Alistair is an anointed knight, one of the few to take the black since I have been Lord Commander. So there's a couple problems with that. First of all, he's calling him an anointed knight as though that in and of itself makes him a smart person or a skilled person or a good person. We're going to get a direct deconstruction of that in my favorite chapter in this book, Sansa 2. Oh, that's your favorite chapter? When Sandor talks about... That's my very favorite chapter in the book, and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, hugely. And uh, one of the reasons why is because Sandor has that great speech where he, he describes how monstrous Gregor was when he was a kid and then says, you know, the Prince of Dragonstone anointed him a knight, called him Sir Arise Sir Gregor. And just the, the horror and folly of that, this, this obvious monster being made a knight and given privileges and given power, is a deconstructive nuke aimed at the worldview Mormont expresses here, where Sir Alistair is innately qualified because he's an anointed knight. And there's also the kind of romantic presentation of one of the few to take the blacks inside been Lord Commander, as though Sir Alistair rode up the King's Road himself on his own volition to take the black to defend the realm, instead of uh, the, the reality, as Sir Jeremy Riker immediately points out, which is that they were both fighting for the Targaryens at King's Landing, and Lord Tywin gave him a choice, the Night's Watch or the Head on a Spike. And they made the right call, but <laughs> it, it doesn't exactly speak well to Mormon's romanticism and his view on his men that this is the way he's framing Sir Alistair. So even before the old bear kind of exposes himself to Tyrion regarding the Night's Watch's weaknesses, you already get a sense in multiple ways from this conversation with Sir Alistair that things are not going well here. Mm-hmm. Just as in just as Ned's opening moves in King's Landing reveal that things are not going well there. Both of these institutions, which are really important for the functioning of Westeros, especially in the face of Apocalypse, the Throne, and the Night's Watch, both of them are collapsing from within. Yeah, they, they're they collapsing from within. And it's funny how they're collapsing because of the people that they have there. Now, someone like Sir Jeremy Riker seems a decent enough dude. Benjamin Stark, as George R. R. Martin has even put it, has a specific skill set that lends himself well to being the first ranger. But a character like Sir Alistair Thorne, just because he is a an anointed knight doesn't mean that he's that he's a, a good choice to be drilling the young warriors and to be the drill instructor figure here. There are plenty of other choices that that we're going to encounter. And this is this is a consistent problem in the Night's Watch and with Westeros in in total. In that they look at someone and they look at their noble title and they assume a certain set of noble virtues that might not necessarily correspond with whether they're actually a virtuous person or not. As we're going to be untangling throughout A Song of Ice and Fire, there is something fundamentally wrong with the feudal structure in Westeros. We've already hinted at it in several times in previous episodes. And that birth is not necessarily the best way to assign virtue and assign whether someone is going to be good at their job or not. As we're going to find out later in A Dance with Dragons, it's a character like Leathers who is he's a he's a wildling, if I'm not mistaken, right? That comes south of the wall. Yes indeed. Yeah, he turns out to be the best swordsman in the Night's Watch. 
you have a character like Satin, who Jon Snow makes as his steward, who is, you know, he's he's a prostitute from Old Town. And, and he is the best character to be a steward, but he there's an institutional feeling in the Night's Watch that because of his birth and his station life and his chosen occupation, or perhaps not chosen, we don't know the full extent of his background, that he's not a good fit. But he turns out to be a pretty good fit as we, as we find out in A Dance of Dragons. And a lot of this comes down to what Mormont is looking at. He's saying that they're that that Alistair took the black as if it was a voluntary thing. It's not a voluntary thing. What it feels more like is that Lord Commander Mormont is projecting his own decision to take the Night's Watch vows on other people around him. Because as we find out later on, Mormont chose the Night's Watch as a profession when he was nearing the end of his life. And he wanted to give his son, Sir Jorah, the ability to be a lord of Bear Island and to do it when he was a little bit younger, as opposed to like picking up in middle age. That has some severe implications and severe consequences for Bear Island and for Jorah as he was young, but he was also married to someone that maybe wasn't the best fit for 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 himself. So when we look at Warmont, we see that him that he's projecting his own reasons for joining the Night's Watch on everyone or a lot of the folks that we're meeting here. And he doesn't maybe not know the men in his command as well as he thinks he knows them, and that's going to have some very severe consequences for G.R. Mormont come a storm of swords when they're at Craster's Keep, and he thinks that he knows his men. He thinks that his status as Lord Commander will protect him from mutiny, and it turns out that it does not protect him from mutiny. Certainly true, and, you know, it's interesting that he has this attitude that an anointed knight makes you moral and qualified given that his son was an anointed right. knight. And disappointed him hugely and committed immoral acts and fled into exile rather than face justice for them. One gets the sense that maybe Mormont is kind of clinging to these outdated ideals and corrupt social institutions as a way of not kind of facing the the shame and wreck that his son yeah. made. That's, and we'll get into that more when we get to John 8 and he gives John Longclaw and talks a little bit about kind of the shame he faced when Jorah fled Bear Island. Uh, before we get more into... Uh, Gior Mormont, we are introduced, as you said in your synopsis, to one of our favorite characters <laughs> at the Wall, another member of the Old Guard, Maester Aemon, who is, of course, a character whose story ties directly into these themes of kind of family and shame and how to manage your duty versus how to manage who you are as a person. Uh, he's introduced, and this struck me reading this chapter again, in a way very similar to and yet contrasting with how Pycelle is introduced in the chapter immediately previous <laughs> to this one, Edward Four. In both cases, you have an elderly maester who's introduced kind of smiling sleepily in the corner whilst the younger men talk at each other. That's kind of the dramatic role that both Pycelle and Aemon play in these respective yeah. chapters. But unlike Pycelle, Aemon genuinely is a font of wisdom and a paragon of character. He's not the grand maester. He's the maester kind of left to uh, rot at the end of the world. But as we'll see throughout the series, he, he genuinely is a, a decent person, a self-sacrificing person, someone who thinks of the greater good and wants to take care of the people under his charge. And uh, he's, a, he's a kind man in truth, despite what he says here, that he's rarely called <laughs> kind. Uh, so by that token, we can consider that Tyrion's protest that he's not a giant to also be false, and that he is in some respect a, a giant among men, a giant here at the end of the world, even if no one rec ever recognizes him as such besides Maester Aemon. And I wonder if it's these kind of spooky, prescient words from Maester Aemon talking about Tyrion this way that inspired Tyrion's quote madness to look off the edge of the world once more later on in the chapter because Maester Aemon is of course a Targaryen 
He's connected somewhat to the magical plot with his letters to Rhaegar and talking about Danny as Azora High. So maybe he kindles something in Tyrion's soul that makes him want to look off the edge of the world. Because much as Tyrion seems to have his mind changed a little bit by just the sight of the haunted forest, he wouldn't be looking at the haunted forest if he hadn't done the uncharacteristic thing of going up to the top of the wall in the first sure. place. So maybe Maestrium kind of inspired this in him. And maybe you could argue did so even more effectively than the old bear did by directly talking about it. Yeah, you know, it's 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 funny about this. And I know I'm getting a little, a little ahead of ours, ourselves here. But when we have Tyrion going up the King's Road early on, he talks about wanting to piss off the, off the wall. And that is something that is portrayed in the show. And I think it's a great touch on Martin's part that he doesn't piss off the wall, that he is awed by what he sees there as a result of what Maester Aemon potentially tells him. And I think that's a cool little touch that Martin is integrating into Tyrion's storyline that he comes away with a, not a grudging, but an actual and real respect for the wall and its place in, in their lives. And kind of dialing back a little bit to, to Aemon, he's, I think you're absolutely right in that he is framed in very similar optics as Pycelle, but in, unlike Pycelle, he is a genuinely good, dude. And he's genuinely kind as well. I, I do think it's inch of interest here that it's, I would say it's hundred percent certain that Tyrion knows that Aemon is a Targaryen, but he doesn't bring it up in this chapter. Hmm. That's I, I think that was likely a bit of a narrative convenience because you wanted to have that reveal come at the end of Jon's arc so that when Jon realizes who Maester Aemon is, that it has a really big narrative impact. But I would be – because, you know, one of the things that comes out in A Storm of Swords is that Stannis knows who Aemon is, right? You know, it's it's one of those things where sure. he's – it's like, do you not think I know – I know who you are, Maester Aemon, you know, of, of the Targaryens and stuff like that as he's thundering about the wall doing, you know, Stannis shit as, he, as, he, as, as he's wont to do. But yeah, it's, it's interesting that Tyrion doesn't bring it up in this, in this, this context and that Maester Aemon is evaluated – as a individual before he's evaluated as a Targaryen. I think that's a great little touch that Martin integrates for Maester Aemon and then making him a person before he makes him a figure worth revering. Absolutely agree, especially with that last point. It's important to humanize Maester Aemon this way, and I think Martin does so really effectively. But then, of course, uh, everyone else kind of clears away and Tyrion's left alone with Elsie Mormont. And this is where the old bear really opens up a vein and you get to know him as a, as a person and not just a, as in his command authority. And it's really, it's so kind of pathetic and yeah. sad and tawdry that this is the position the Night's Watch has fallen to. Like, they used to negotiate with dragon-riding monarchs. Yeah. They hosted the old king and good queen Alisan and... And now the Lord Commander in his most desperate hours reduced to bribing the Queen's least favorite brother with a couple of guards in this Hail Mary attempt to try and get the ear of the king. Like, this is what this extremely vital pan-Westerosi institution has come yep. to. Really underscores the desperate situation the Night's Watch find themselves in, that this is the way the Lord Commander thinks he's going to be able to get help. So it makes you feel for him on one hand, the way he's talking about it to Tyrion, and Tyrion, you know, feels kind of faintly embarrassed for him, promises to help even though he knows he won't do any good. So you feel for Mormons, but on the flip side, you know, Tyrion takes this really kind step of suggesting that John be one of his honor yeah. guards, which would let him visit Winterfell and see his family again. Which, of course, gets to Tyrion's, you know, struggle with him about wanting to love his family, even as they really don't give him any reason to. <laughs> And Mormont's response to this reveals the coldness that was discussed by John in his previous chapter, the way the Night's Watch is cold and the people there are cold. 
And that this is part of the weakness of the Watch, that they're asking recruits to give up what tethers them to humanity while also devoting themselves to humanity at the same time, which is a very difficult tightrope to walk. The, the quote from Mormont is, Snow? Oh, the Stark bastards. And I think not. The young ones need to forget the lives they left behind them. And I love this. The brothers and mothers and all that. <laughs> all that all bullshit. That. You family and such. You know, all that noise. A visit home and only stir up feelings best left alone. I know these things. My own blood kin. My sister Mage rules Bear Island now, since my son's dishonor. I have nieces I have never seen. Like, that's not a model of life that anyone's going to really be into, no. right? I mean, that's he's not exactly making the Night's Watch sound great or sound worthy. It sounds like a place where the best part of you goes to right. die. Of course, again, that's shot through with his shame about yeah. Jorah. I imagine maybe he didn't talk this way. Before Jorah went into exile, maybe he wasn't so cold and hard on the subject of family and home before family and home became such a painful topic for him. I think that's possible. It's also it's a continuation of that projection that Mormont has that he of what he's projecting sure. his own feelings on what the Night's Watch should be because he feels like he can't go home because of the shame that Jorah brought on the Mormonts. And he feels that he just needs to forget his family and leave all those feelings alone and not go back back home and visit his family, which, you know, if, if you think about it, is kind of a weird thing to say because our introduction to the Night's Watch doesn't come through Mormont. It comes through Amar Royce and, and through those, the Watchmen. But our, our second introduction, <laughs> to phrase it a little bit better, comes through Benjamin Stark, who is the first ranger who comes south to Winterfell to visit his family. So that- True. Good point doesn't seem accurate to what the Night's Watch is actually all about, that there is a place for not having this is, and I think you said this in our last uh, John episode about the, the Night's Watch being this kind of Jedi order of leaving all these feelings behind. You know, as we find in Benjen, he has a, a warmth with his family, with his brother and with his his nephew that, of course, he he has to abandon when he gets north of the, when he gets up to Castle Black so as to not seem preferential to John and also to kind of instill this sense of duty and the sense of solemn, solemn duty to John at, at Castle Black. But Mormont, though, is just taking it to an extreme. And I think he's taking all of these things to an extreme because he's continuously utilizing his own experience to make the Night's Watch in his own image. Because, you know, this book and all the other books – as we find out, this it's not simply a, a, a cold calculus of doing X, Y, and Z and seeing these results. What George does in the books is that he weaves the emotional and weaves the backstory in so that people are making decisions and basing their ideology off of who they came up as and who and their experiences in life. And I think that's important to remember as we're talking about these different characters in A Song of Ice and Fire, but especially the ones up at the wall. I agree with everything you just said there, sir. I think it's interesting that Mormont at the end kind of takes this back and is, is devoted to his family in his last seconds. So all he can think about yeah. is his son and that he wants to forgive him and that he wishes he could do that. Or you compare it to Corrin Halfhand, who went in his last moments with John is looking at the fire and compares it to like a shy, beautiful maid on her wedding night. And John wonders if Corrin Halfhand ever had a yeah. wedding. And it's, he wonders if he ever had a, a personal life like that. Or you have Mance Raider, who uses the image of the the black cloaks kind of slashed and replaced with red silk and the way the Night's Watch couldn't accept that as kind of a metaphor for the Night's Watch sucking the blood yeah. out of you, sucking the yeah. life out of you, sucking the individuality out of you. And Mance just couldn't accept that. Yeah, this gets at something deeply wrong within the heart of the Night's Watch and something that 
Mormont is blind to for a couple reasons. One is it's, again, a class thing that he's here by choice. If you're not here by choice, especially if you were sent here for a crime like poaching or like stealing pepper off the table, as we see with one Arya chapter in Clash of Kings, you're not going to exactly be so gung-ho right. about leaving everything behind. And it's also like, you know, Elsie Mormont could be sure when he left that his son would keep the family name going and the hearth blazing. And would Jorah fell short of that, then Mage picked it up. But if you're like, you're a peasant and you're the breadwinner for your family and you get sent to the wall, your family might be right. screwed. So how, how can you be told to not care about what happens to them when you're gone? And even more so when Mormon's talking about the young ones need to forget the lives they left behind them. That's really a Jedi vibe mm-hmm. for me that like this, this, this is their entire existence you're taking away from them. They, 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 the stuff you're forgetting are, are half-formed relationships and half-lived childhood. For Elsie Mormont, this is retirement. That's what the Night's Watch yeah. is. This is his like version of a re- of retirement, and that's not the case for someone who's as young as no. John. And he he seems very callous about it in in that moment. What we're talking about extends beyond the Night's Watch itself. It extends to the Kingsguard, to knighthood in general, and to how these institutions, the demands they make on people. There's the great Jamie quote from Clash of Kings that everyone loves: "So many vows, they make you swear and swear." Defend the king, obey the king, keep his secrets, do his bidding, your life for his. But obey your father, love your sister, protect the innocent, defend the weak, respect the gods, obey the laws. It's too much. No matter what you do, you're forsaking one vow (laughs) or the other. And that's something that, of course, John is going to deal with throughout his story in one way or another. It comes really to the fore at the end of A Dance with Dragons when he receives the pink letter and ultimately chooses family in Winterfell over the Night's Watch, at least in that moment. It's it's even something that the villains get at inadvertently. There's this, the slaver Krasnys Monaklas, I yes. believe it is, in uh, Astapor, when he's talking about the unsullied and the treatment that they go through. And he asks about institutions like the Kingsguard and the Night's Watch and the Septs, the, the Septons, and how they have to choose a celibate life and live with the desires but repress them. And to him, that's more cruel than castrating people. Yeah. And of course, that's not to defend what Krasnys Monoclos is doing to the Unsullied, but it just shows how interested in Martin is in this idea that he puts it in the mouths of even some of his most horrible people yep. in the series, which is that you can romanticize duty and self-sacrifice and giving yourself up for the greater good. And, you know, you should to a certain extent, but be aware of the human costs of that and that you put yourself in the position of sacrificing that which you are trying to defend, humanity, and that it this is something to bring up Stannis yet again <laughs> that comes up strongly in Stannis's story. The notion that humanity is as captured in the individual as in the whole, that Edric Storm is a universe unto himself and matters as much as humanity yeah. in on mass. You know, it's, it does no good to sacrifice a human to protect humanity because you are giving up the thing you're trying to defend. Yeah. And that a cold utilitarian calculus misses that. And the cold calculus that Mormont is making misses that. And that this is something I think Martin passionately believes in, is the, the worth of the individual, the worth of the individual's happiness, and the worth of breaking down institutions that seek to restrict yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're you're spot on that that conflict of vows and those conflicts between what we value and what the Night's Watch and what individual people like Mormont value are often in conflict with each other, and they do lead to events like the pink letter where John and we can, we can have a great long discussion about the pink letter, but at its very essence, John's decision to march South to save his sister, to send Mance Raider to save his sister early on and in opposition to the night's watch vows is a big thing that, you know, the people from the night's watch are going to deal with. And it's not just John. You've got characters like Darian who 
doesn't want to be in the Night's Watch anyways because he was one of those characters who was forced at sword point to go to the wall. When he gets to Bravos and he has the ability to shrug off his vows, he does. But yeah, it's it, the thing also, too, is that the Night's Watch is not a popular profession by any stretch of the imagination, at least at this juncture in history. In the past, you know, as we talked about in that last John chapter, there had been thousands of men at Castle Black and thousands of other men along spread across different fortresses along the castle. But it's a really small force at this point in the story, and that's perhaps because of how difficult the Night's Watch vows are. Perhaps there's other things at work, too. Certainly, but uh, regardless of the causes of it, as Mormont notes, at this point, the wall itself is too big for such a small force to defend adequately, which recasts our initial perspective of the wall, which is this kind of this quiet, horrifying awe, where you just look at it as John was in John 3 and think, who built that? What's on the yeah. other side? What... What do you need a 700-foot-high ice wall to stop? Because it's not the wildlings. You don't need a 7... You don't. You need Hadrian's wall. You need, like, a 10 to 12-foot-high wall to deal effectively with the wildlings. You do not need a 700-foot-high ice wall. In this chapter, it's being recast as, like, a grotesque white elephant a la Harrenhal, something that's just too damn huge for a non-army to maintain and keep going. So you have both these kind of logistical and fairy tale elements that are kind of colliding and intertwining and contributing to the Night's Watch downfall because it's these very real-world concerns of I don't have enough men, I don't have the attention of people in authority, the men I do have don't have the skills, that the skill sets I need, with combined with this threat that is very otherworldly and mystical and everyone's on the run, but they're running from what? And it's, it's a very spooky kind of horror movie moment. I like that collision, and that, that collision is obviously something Martin is interested in, the dialectic between the rational, skeptical side of things and the irrational, magical side of things is something that he does over and over and over again across mm -hmm. the series. You see it with Davos versus Davos versus Melisandre, both Storm's End and Dragonstone. You see it in Old Town uh, with the rational skeptic student Armin arguing against the pupils of Marwyn the Mage. It's the Grey Sheep versus the Mage yeah. in Old Town. You see it really heavily in Winterfell, come a Clash of Kings, where you have Osha and Jojen kind of nudging Bran towards opening his third eye and embracing the magical side and Maester Lewin representing more of the skeptical rationalist side. And you see it here where Tyrion plays the rationalist to Elsie Mormont's uh, believer, comparatively speaking, in the magical side of things. It's, it's always an interesting debate. I think Martin generally does it well where his interest is not in one side convincing the other and more in fleshing out the two sides and how they interact and what they think of each other. I think it's interesting that Martin tends to come down on the, the irrational magical side being correct or closer mm -hmm. to correct which is that's the that's the fantasy genre in a nutshell right there is that the the educated guys tend to be incorrect that's what separates it from sci-fi i think is that fantasy tends to come down on the side on the stories being true the old folk wisdom being correct and the the inexplicable and the irrational kind of ruling the day to a certain extent do you think that's martin playing with the trope or playing rather inside the trope or is whether he's playing against his own type because as we know george is a strong agnostic if not an atheist i think he said he's used both words in past conversations does he try to play against his own assumptions and his own biases, or do you think he's trying to play within the the scope of what fantasy means? To be honest, I think this is one of the more traditional and familiar aspects of A Song of Ice and Fire in terms of the fantasy genre. And it's easy to overstate in general how deconstructive Martin is being. It's, it's, he's obviously working well within oh, the sure. framework. 
to a large degree, uh, which is what makes the deviations work so well because they're, you know, they're deviating from a context that he sets up. But in this case, I think it always felt, it always felt very traditional to me, this particular dynamic, like old, old Nan is such a classic fantasy character <laughs> in every respect. You know, the way Maester Lewin talks is very familiar in terms of the, the mentor who doesn't believe the apocalypse is coming. There's always someone. I was rereading some bits of the Wheel of Time. There's always characters like that. There's the village elder who believes that something, some storm is coming in the village elder who poo-poos that notion. <laughs> you know, that's that's a that's a classic part of the genre. You know, you, you set up your medieval world, and you have these otherworldly elements kind of intrude upon it, and that's that's something that I I, I don't feel is particularly deconstructed throughout the series. I mean, pe- people don't know what the others are, and there's or obviously the origin and backstory will get fleshed out as it was in the show. You know, we'll see how similar it is, but it's certainly going to be fleshed out more. But this particular aspect, where the there's there's Cassandra's warning of a of a magical element in the air, <laughs> of, a, of a return of some kind. And society kind of dismissing it or ignoring it in some fashion. You kind of need that in a fantasy story. That's where the drama comes from before the enemy actually shows up. Before the threat becomes undeniable, a lot of the drama is always wrung from people getting warnings and not acting in time. When you were talking about the the wall being built, it made me think like how terrifying the Long Night and the others must have been that they built a 300 foot tall wall to stop any potential incursion south again. I think that's something that maybe doesn't get emphasized as much is that they built a giant irrational wall to stop some force from coming south. They had they felt they had to build it higher than than some skyscrapers in the modern day, higher than even George who who apparently was looking at some of the the matte paintings that they were doing for the wall back in season 1. He's like Huh, I may I might have made that a little bit too high that can be rational because he was looking I don't know if you guys remember from season 1 where they're looking up at the wall and you can just sort of see the top of it cuz it's so high up there and it's yeah, it's definitely uh, something that that Martin is uh said he's had a little bit of regret on but I don't necessarily think he should because I think it's it really helps reinforce the point that the others are absolutely terrifying or that the first men in the age of heroes decided that they had to build something so gigantic, so irrational that it was the only thing that could potentially stop another long night from coming down on the realm of men. Yeah, it's like the George Lucas quote after he uh, saw the first cut of Phantom Menace. Uh, I may have gone too far in a few places. <laughs> I feel like that that's that's Martin on the wall to a certain extent. But part of me is also like, yeah, but so what if it's unrealistic? It's awesome. Right. Like, there's also, you have to kind of indulge that part of it. That can't be everything. The story can't be based on the rule of cool because that's how you get sloppy, lazy fiction. Yes. But in, in, in quick bursts, in certain moments, like I've, I've seen, whenever I see someone complaining about the irrationality of the size of the wall, it's like, just but have some imagination, you joyless zit. <laughs> like it's, it's supposed to be... It's it's fantasy. Martin has that great quote about how, you know, reality is disappointing. Fantasy is supposed to be full of lapis lazuli and gold yes. and giant structures. And that's part of the appeal. It's easy to get too lost in it. And you should certainly interrogate it. But that's part of why you read the books. So I think I'm, I'm extremely glad that the wall is, is, is a gigantic, irrational, unrealistic artifact. Yeah. Like you say, it gets at the fear of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely agree that it does have to be amazing and it does have to defy our imagination or not just defy our imagination, but kind of set it on fire, help us expand our, our sure. own imagination. I think that's a cool thing that Martin does and what fantasy does in general. 
But the really cool thing about this chapter is that it's we're not we're not we're not spending the entirety of the chapter at the base of the wall. Tyrion actually goes up the wall and he encounters his old friend Jon Snow. Yes, our first time atop the wall itself, kind of that giddy feeling of looking down on everything, looking down on the map, uh, coming interestingly enough from a POV of someone who's looked down on his whole life, and you know quite literally, you got Sandor saying spirits in the air and pretending he can't see <laughs> yeah. Tyrion, and now Tyrion is atop them all. Possibly foreshadowing some uh, dragon shenanigans, possibly mm-hmm. not, but it's it's an interesting, interesting to get this particular perspective from him. And like you say, he runs into John, and they have a very sweet scene where they kind of gradually get to what they really want to talk about, just bit by bit. Again, it feels very organic, as we were saying in John three. Yes. They don't just immediately come out and talk about the important thing. They 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 work their way to it. Like John, as he's telling Tyrion the message he wants to send, like he starts very flippantly with Rob, as you say, gets down to Rickon, you know, which is just very like, you know, he's he's a little kid, just tell him we'll have my stuff, that'll make him happy. And then they get to Bran, which is really the heart of yeah. things, and where John needs something from Tyrion. And it's very moving in both the scenes, both with the old bear and with John Tyrion is being asked to deliver this message. But this is the one he does, even though it's in the big picture, it's the less important one. But that's kind of why it's it's personal instead of political. And it, it moves Tyrion on that level that he's being reached out to as a friend and that inspires him. And you got to think like, OK, he's, he's looking at John, the physically strong, able-bodied warrior archetype, you know, trying to look out for his disabled little brother. And I'm sure this feels at some level to Tyrion much like Jamie and himself. Yeah. There was that great line in Tyrion 1 about how Jamie had been the only one to show Tyrion any kindness throughout his childhood. And, you know, for that, Tyrion would forgive Jamie almost anything. <laughs> so maybe Tyrion is thinking of that dynamic and wanting to inspire that same kind of warmth. You know, it's a moment of connection and empathy that, between the two that, you know, lingers with you. And it lingers even though the, these two have not interacted again for the rest of the story so far. But it makes me think at this point that Martin has very firmly in mind that he intends for them to interact again near the end of the series yeah. and to do so in a very important impactful way. So you have this kind of unlikely bond, this very kind of optimistic moment in the midst of a very pessimistic chapter. You know, like the rest of the chapter is things fall apart, institutions decay, I'm going to die, nothing I did meant anything at all. And then you have this kind of very sweet bond between these two people who never expected to forge a bond between the two of them, people from families that are at each other's throats, people who feel like outcasts in general, and it's inspiring. It's especially inspiring because then they look off the wall into the face of the end of the world. So you can almost sense Martin trying to encapsulate the series. When the cold winds rise, we shall live or die together, to borrow from Stannis. And you see that kind of enacted here. Yeah, you you do, for sure. Absolutely. And then, you know, they, they stare into the haunted forest and... I love that what Mormon's words couldn't accomplish, the sight of the haunted forest does, that Tyrion believes, as you said in your synopsis, just only for a moment did the stories of the others seem real to him. <laughs> and there's almost like a meta aspect to this, I feel. Like, it's like Martin saying, show, don't tell. That the, the information delivered verbally to Tyrion doesn't really convince him, but Martin wants you to feel the others, even when they're not there, even when you're not hearing about them. He wants to give them a presence, and you get the same kind of sense that here that you got in the prologue when Will was saying that he... he been through the haunted forest half a dozen times but he didn't feel fr- afraid until tonight yeah and Tyrion's getting that same sense of fear that the others are looking back at him yeah it's 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 a cool callback to the prologue for sure and i think that's interesting too and it's, it's a good writer tip for those of you who are writers out there that you want to have the feeling of a scene communicate what you want to communicate without Tyrion saying to John, ah, I can almost sense that the others are out there beyond the wall. 
because I sure. just had gotten from Lord Commander Mormont that he has heard that the White Walkers are out there. That That's bad writing. It's, it's bad writing because it basically just tells you without the reader having to make the connection in his own mind that Mormont's words and Amon's words are having impacts on Tyrion and having impacts in such a way that he's feeling something here. He's feeling emotions and the emotion he's feeling when he's looking north of the wall and looking at the haunted forest is fear. It's that fear that's animating Tyrion as he's looking out. It's the same fear that Will was feeling when they're north of Craster's Keep, begin to feel that the others are, are around or something is wrong about this night. And that is something that George does really well, is that he channels those emotions and those feelings into something that manifests as horror, as, as we find out in the prologue, as we find out at the Battle of the Fist of the First Men, as we're going to find out later in the Game of Thrones, where the two dead men rise and nearly kill Lord Commander Mormont. So that really does good work there. And I do feel that Mormont's statements to Tyrion are nice and creepy and they're cool. And that I like that, for whatever reason, I really gravitated towards his words that, why are these people fleeing south? We don't know why. What is driving them south? Like, this, the question is there. The reader knows why. But Mormon, as a character in the books, he doesn't know why. And it helps preserve that sense of the unknown and of that emotion of fear that Tyrion is going to be experiencing later atop the wall. Yeah, it's that sense of the dreadful sublime before something huge and unknowable and you feel your kind of preconceptions burning away. John had to swallow his pride in the previous chapter in The Wall and that Tyrion has to swallow his snark, which I love. Yeah. I don't know if that's intentional on Martin's part that one of the monsters is, is the snarks. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the, the word for being flippant and sarcastic and not taking things seriously is the name of one of the fake monsters. I think that's a nice connection. And, but, the, but the real monsters are the ones that get rid of your snark. Yeah. And uh, Tyrion has this sudden sense of dread and it's connected to, quote, no fires burning anywhere. So again, we get the ice and fire symbology that he's looking into the face of ice and is feeling the lack of fire. And that, that's what kind of stirs something deep and unpleasant in his gut. That there's no sign of associating fire with, you know, the hearth and humanity gathering together around the fire. There's that image of, you know, the reserve gathering together around the fire on the fist of the first man, which you just mentioned. And Tyrion is feeling this dread connected to that being taken away and to that that protection being gone yeah yeah and that is that is ultimately as you said uh, a little while ago that these scenes feel very kind of disconnected but they do come together at Mm -hmm. the end and that's that's ultimately what happens here is that this chapter Tyrion 3 ultimately makes us feel that the world is ending and that westeros isn't ready for it you get this sense of dread and hopelessness looking into the haunted forest, and that's given weight because we've just learned all these, again, logistical, rational ways the Night's Watch is breaking down. So this is the institution that has to deal with this growing threat, and it's not prepared to do so. No. And you get that put in such mournful terms when John says he's going to go out after Benjen, and Tyrion wonders who's going to go out after you. And like you say, it's, that's very horror, this sense of we're going to go out one by one and not no one's going to come back. And we're gradually going to be whittled down by by the thing in the woods. It's, it's You can tell again that Martin is very invested in the horror genre, has written horror before in a variety of media, because he really brings that dread home at the end of the chapter, and that's what really seals the deal for me. Yeah, he absolutely does. And that kind of takes us right into our likes and dislikes of this chapter. 
So you want to kick us off on our, on what the things that you liked more generally about this chapter, Emmett? Sure. We've kind of alluded to it in bits and pieces, but we haven't discussed it as a whole. Tyrion's relationship to kindness versus mockery is something that repeatedly comes up throughout his story, and it really comes into focus here. It's all part of the kind of self-defense mechanisms he's developed at Casterly Rock, using laughter and sarcasm that's going to come his way as a weapon against other people to kind of preemptively prevent their, their mockery and get people on his side. You can see that in the scene with the Night's Watch officers where he not only mocks Sir Alistair because he doesn't like Sir Alistair, he also mocks Sir Alistair to get the people in the room on his side. This is something Tyrion's clearly used to doing. Like, I'm in danger of being mocked, and, and the, or worse even, so I need to be able to use humor effectively, and I need to be able to use it to to against my opponents in a way to get third parties to, you know, laugh with me instead of at me. You can see Tyrion's mindset in that regard throughout the series, and I think you can really see it here. He mocks Sir Alistair and is accused of mocking the Watch as a whole, but then by contrast, he's really kind of taken aback by First Mace Draymond's kindness and then Lord Commander Mormont's vulnerability. He really doesn't expect either of those emotions Mm -hmm. and doesn't seem to know quite what to do with them, whereas with Sir Alistair's mockery, he knows exactly what to do. That fits him like a glove. Yeah. And then ultimately, he's really touched and moved by John's friendship, and that leads to his generous gift in Brand 4, as we'll discuss when we get to that chapter. I like this because it grounds his character, given that at this point, it's hard to ignore that he's the least motivated of the POVs. Yeah. You know, like, Ned is, I'm going to King's Landing, I'm going to be hand and find out what happened to John Aaron, I'm going to, you know, help my friend, and Catelyn is, I'm going to protect my family and find out what happened, and Bran is, I want to be a knight, and now i got to deal with my life after my legs have been broken. John is, you know, I want to prove myself and have a life and be happy in the night's watching. Tyrion at this point is, I am going to the wall because I'm leaving because I'm going to go look <laughs> off the top of the wall. I don't even know why. Yeah. It's it's not bad in love itself, but it does stand out in contrast. And I think it would be bad if Martin didn't ground the character so effectively emotionally. Yeah. With his, his relationship to... A world that has been unkind to him, how he deals with kindness in that world and how he's going to be in response. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that takes me right into my like for this chapter is that the second act of the chapter, if you will, so to speak, hits a number of great emotional notes. You get the subtext over John's feeling of sadness over the over Benjamin Stark, who's been missing for a little while at this point. And then his plea for Tyrion to help Bran in any way that he can. You also get the sad note as well of who will go and find you, which we've talked about at some length previously. So these emotional beats hit well with me. And like you said, I do love the introduction of Maester Aemon, and I do love the vulnerability of Lord Commander Mormont. And I think there's a really strong haunting quality in what Lord Commander Mormont is telling Tyrion about the White Walkers by Eastwatch, people fleeing south of the wall, and he doesn't know why. But there's something a bit off about all of that. Yeah, that gets into my dislike for this chapter, which is I really wish Martin had cut the bit where Elsie Mormont directly references the White Walkers. That's I think that's clunky for a number of reasons. First of all, it's spookier and more effective just in that part of the conversation with running from what, like you were saying. Yeah. It's it's much more interesting to have this sense of a great movement, a great threat, but to not know exactly what it is, but we know what it is. Yeah. That's classic dramatic irony. That would be much better than just kind of directly, bluntly spelling it out. And more importantly, it's really hard to reconcile that with his actions. And this is where Elsie Mormont stops looking like a good man with a clouded view trying to do his best by his decaying institution and more like an idiot. (laughs) Because if he's heard and believes that the others are back, why is he talking to Tyrion? Why is he not talking to Ned Stark, the Lord of Winterfell, whose brother is First Ranger, who could have the yeah. assembled armies of the North on the wall in the blink? Yeah, like, maybe he wouldn't believe you. 
But maybe Tyrion's not going to believe you. Ned probably would stand a better chance of believing you than Tyrion would. Why are you trying to appeal to the crown via Tyrion rather than through Ned, the best friend of the king? It's really hard to make this make sense. It shouldn't be on OSHA to try and transmit this extremely urgent message to the people most capable of doing something about it. All of that can be taken care of if you just cut that line about the White Walkers, so I wish he had. One million percent agree. And that's also my major dislike about this chapter. The way it reads, it's it's not even a moment where George is communicating that Lord Commander Mormont may not be all that great of a commander of the, of the Night's Watch. That comes around later during the mission creep phase of the Night's Watch mission beyond the wall. It's building tension and suspense, and it does that well, I think. But I think that line about the White Walkers just undercuts that tension and suspense. It kind of almost releases it in, in a way that's a bit premature. And this scene almost works in a vacuum where Ned Stark, Robert, Raven communication, a king's row that runs north to the wall and south to King's Landing doesn't exist. But the problem is, is that we know that Mormon and Nedark are in communication in this very chapter where we get, quote, Garrod was near as old as I am and longer on the wall, he went on. Yet it would seem he forswore himself and fled. I should have never believed it. Not of him. But Lord Eddard sent me his head from Winterfell, unquote. And so we, we get the sense that Lord Commander Mormont's already in communication with, with Ned Stark and with others as well. And he's not communicating this really important fact that perhaps the others have returned and Maybe we should be preparing for their return and, you know, maybe Ned should get his – should start calling his banners and getting ready for the potential of a second long night. And, you know, that's also something that Mormont references, that he thinks that the next – that the long night is coming again. The long night, as we're going to find out in the next brand chapter, is a legend. but is a legend that people know about, that people are aware of and that people believe was a historical event that happened. Perhaps the Maesters would probably disagree with that. So I don't normally pick on George for his writing because I think he's really good as we're, you know, we're doing a whole podcast about all of his chapters from A Song of Ice and Fire. But damn, George, this doesn't necessarily work as well as maybe you intended it to work. And it does have some consequences in the writing of this chapter, which I do feel is a little bit disjointed at points. Yeah, and I, th- I think this is the primary example of that. This is where he, Martin kind of tips his hand a little bit. Generally speaking, I think he manages the others really masterfully in terms of Constantly having them on the edge of people's awareness, constantly having people react to what they're doing, but not having them be on screen too much, so to speak, and not having people talk about them so blatantly that the fear and mystery goes away. But this is one little moment, I think, where he does go a little bit overboard. Yeah. Yeah. But generally speaking, I do like Mormon's monologue as foreshadowing for where the Night's Watch is going to go going forward and what's going to happen to them in terms of the others and their internal disputes, which gets us into the groundwork and foreshadowing laid down in this chapter. And there's quite a bit, as you might expect, for such a trepidatious chapter in general in terms of its tone. Yeah. Uh, first and foremost, most obviously, as in John 3, we see this animosity growing between Tyrion and Alistair Thorne. Very kind of personally at this point, not even just on behalf of John, And that is, of course, going to have heavy consequences come the Clash of Kings. As we mentioned in John 3, when Alistair comes south with the hand of one of the Whites who attacked Elsie Mormont in order to try and convince uh, Tyrion as acting Hand of the King to do something with the threat facing the Night's Watch. And Tyrion uh, ultimately dismisses it. He sends off Sir Alistair with some people to kind of stiffen the Night's Watch ranks, but doesn't take the overall threat seriously, despite the shiver he experiences at the top of the wall in this chapter. And why, of course, is because even as he thinks back to that creepy moment, he's ultimately decided against helping Sir Alistair by the thought of being mocked and the the sound of laughter in the room. 
and wanting to be taken seriously in a world that has generally not taken him seriously, which is, of course, the exact same source of the debate between Tyrion and Alistair. Uh, Lannister mocks us, and Tyrion not wanting to be mocked himself. Yeah. So it's not just that you have this relationship coming up again. It's with the, the same themes and the same ideas that what what more human statement could be, be than that, that I'm going to let the world end because I don't want to be laughed at. Like, that's such a, that's such a perfect encapsulation of human weakness and folly. <laughs> Uh, something that Tyrion has in common with his father on that particular subject. And I think uh, the Tyrion-Alistair relationship is a great microcosm of that. Yeah, like like I said earlier, it's it's very much that what Martin does is that he weaves the backstory and emotions into the plot points, and he does that really well. And I think that is something that comes into significant play when Sir Alistair comes to King's Landing in A Clash of Kings, and Tyrion utilizes that past relationship and utilizes the fact that Sir Alistair is this guy that he thinks has a knife up his butt. And that's one of those phrases that actually is not one of my favorites of Martin's in this, in this chapter. <laughs> sure. But, um, but he does utilize that knowledge of who Sir Alistair is to his advantage to, to win some minor support on, on his behalf at the, at, at court. But on the same hand though, we get hints of a Bowen Marsh, Alistair Thorn Alliance early on here, and that's something that will be prominent in the Lord Commander election come a Storm of Swords, where Tyrion says, I have seen dead men with more humor than your Sir Alistair. Not so objected the Lord Steward Bowen Marsh. The man is round as red as a pomegranate. You ought to hear the droll names he gives the lads as he trains. That's, to me, speaking of a bit of foreshadowing for the alliance that we're going to be seeing there. I'm not sure if it was intended as foreshadowing because we don't know what Martin's plan was when he was writing this chapter at that point. But as we come to find in the Storm of Swords, Bowen Marsh is allied with Sir Alistair and they work together to try to get Janna Slint elected as Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. And having Bowen Marsh think that, oh, it's just a big joke what Sir Alistair is doing with these boys. Ha ha, that's so funny, all the droll names it gives the lads. No, it's not. It's not a joke, man. Like what, what Sir Alistair doing is abusive and is not preparing these men for their service in the Night's Watch. Yeah, I agree with what you said there at the end that you know, it gets at Bowen Marsh kind of a shallow person detached from the actual running of the institution, despite him having the reputation for counting up all the spoons and being the right man with the numbers that he's not actually keyed into to the logistical needs of the Night's Watch, as you might want for someone in his position. And of course, we'll expand on that much more when we get to A Storm of Swords and even more so in A Dance with Dragons. Yes. Also in that same scene around the, the table, of course, you have Mr. Eamon's comments about Tyrion, which we talked a little bit about earlier, but they are, they do stand out as, as, as being meaningful in some fashion. We don't know exactly how, but the way Mr. Eamon is introduced and the way it kind of brings the conversation to a halt, the way Tyrion doesn't really know how to respond, it does, you can, you can sense that Martin wants us to kind of crane our necks in and pay attention to this little part of the dialogue. Specifically phrasing it as a giant at the end of the world. The end of the world, of course, being a place, in the way Maester Eamon is phrasing it as the wall. But you could also see Martin indulging in some wordplay as the end of the world as a time, the, the apocalypse, the <laughs> battle for the dawn, that kind of end of the world. So maybe it's a hint that Tyrion will have a, a giant role to play there. He will be significant in the battle for the dawn, that he will eventually take this fear seriously that he experiences on the top of the wall. It might also also be a hint at his uh, potential Targaryen heritage. Yeah. Uh, the fact that Maester Aemon of all people is bringing this up and there's that little moment where he's like, he's looking at Tyrion with his blind eyes and you get the sense that he's seeing him truly even though he can't see him literally. So maybe this is a moment where Maester Aemon makes this unexpected connection on, on that count. And if Tyrion is a Targaryen, then that links it to his conversation with Jon that you have two Targaryen bastards, uh, unknowingly, 
uh, forming this friendship, forming this bond. So yeah. that that there's there's a number of possible payoffs there for uh, Tyrion's little conversation with Maester Aemon, but it does again, it does have the feel of something that's important, even if you don't know quite why yet. At, at the very least, it does set Tyrion up as an endgame player in A Song of Ice and Fire. And that at least is something that we are seeing in the show version of, of events as Tyrion is still alive by the end of season seven. Whether he makes it to the end of season eight is something that I guess we're going to have to see down the road. But but yeah, I, I definitely agree with all your points there that there is some provides some subtle evidence for the Tyrion Targaryen theory, whether that's intentional on Martin's part or not. It is there as either, well, it could be three things. It could be Martin having some subtle foreshadowing. It could be some uh, part of the uh, the false breadcrumb trail, as we uh, we talk about in our uh, our Tyrion episode, or rather our first John episode, whether Tyrion's a Targaryen or not, or it could be just unintentional that Martin was just using some cool wording, and uh, people have, have drawn the wrong conclusion based on on the wording that Martin uses. So it could be any one of those three possibilities. Always got to keep that last one in mind for sure. We can easily overinterpret. Oh yeah. Uh, but speaking of speaking of Tyrion and Endgame, he also brings up this interesting point. Uh, when I was a boy, my wet nurse told me that one day, if men were good, the gods would give the world a summer without ending. Perhaps we've been better than we thought, and the great summer is finally at hand. Which brings up kind of an interesting fantasy element to the series that hasn't really tickled my fancy yet because it hasn't paid off in any way, and that's the irregular length of the seasons. At least irregular from our perspective, mm-hmm. where seasons last years at a time. People, of course, have brought up logistical complaints about this, and those don't especially interest me, but there hasn't really, it hasn't really played into the drama yet, the fact that the seasons are this long. There hasn't really been a connection to it between, a connection between that and the other magical hijinks going on in the series. Presumably, in some later brand chapter, we'll get a connection here. But I'm just curious, you know, Tyrion seems to foreshadow a, a great summer arriving after the long night. What do you think is going to happen to the seasons at series end? Are they going to revert to what we would call normal? Is there going to be a great summer? Is it going to be the same? I think that Martin has said that the reason for the seasons being unaligned or out of out of order is a magical one. And he hasn't gone on to say anything more about that. There is the common theory that the others are the cause of the imbalance of the seasons. That is a possibility for sure. I I can see it being a bit open-ended at the end of the series where, as we talked about in our very first episode of the Nauticast, if you guys remember, um, we talked about the great theory that our our friend Florian or A41827 or something, I I can't remember his full username without looking at it, has the idea that Bran will be our, our final point of view for A Song of Ice and Fire and A Dream of Spring and his last line will be will parallel what his line was at the start of A Game of Thrones, which was that Bran will see that's you know, the day at dawn, bright and warm, hinting at the end of winter and that summer had come at last or something to that effect. I think that could be a good open-ended and also kind of hopeful note at the end of A Song of Ice and Fire. And I I mean, I, I kind of hope at the end of everything that the great summer is finally at hand and that Westeros will be finally on the right course, at least in terms of its seasons, if not its people. But I think it's something that I don't know that Martin is going to explore fully. I think it's going to be something that will be ultimately open-ended, as Martin seems to like to leave things as a bittersweet ending, as he said. It's, the ending will be bittersweet. So winter coming to an end, summer finally at hand. I mean, it could work for sure. I agree there. Uh, that's away from the more kind of mystical open-ended stuff into the hard logistical end of things. We also see... Some foreshadowing in this chapter for what's going to happen with the Night's Watch as an institution going forward. There is. We get some great ranging foreshadowing from Lord Commander Mormont 
where he says, quote, of Royce, there is no word, one deserter and two men lost, and now Ben Stark has gone missing as well. Who am I to send searching after him? In two years, I will be 70, too old and too weary for the burden I bear. As we're going to find out at A Game of Thrones, Mormon is not at the age of 70 yet, so he still thinks that he can go on this great ranging north of the wall and to search for Benjamin Stark, because that is the purpose of the Great Ranging initially. It becomes much more in-depth, and as we're going to talk about, is going to have a lot of mission creep coming onto it as they begin to develop plans to battle Mance Raider north of the wall, and instead of trying to search for Benjamin Stark, and that's not going to be something that's going to work out so well for the Night's Watch, as they're going to be confronted by the Whites and the others at the Fist of the First Men. Yes, indeed, and that's where they're going to see the ultimate last gasp of strength of the Night's Watch and Elsie Mormont's attempt to keep his men alive as they retreat from the Fist of the First Men, and also, of course, the final collapse with the Mutiny of Christ's Keep. And with that, of course, you're going to find the Lord Commander slot left open for our boy. Oh, yeah. So, in A Storm of Swords, Jon Snow is elected as Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, and we get a fair amount of foreshadowing here. Where Mormont says, yet if I set the burden down, who will pick it up? Alistair Thorne, Bowen Marsh. I would have to be as blind as Maester Eamon not to see what they are. Not to see what they are. The Night's Watch has become an army of sullen boys and tired old men. Apart from the men at my table tonight, I have perhaps 20 who can read and even fewer who can think or plan or lead. Well, you know, there is one character in at Castle Black who fulfills all of Lord Mormont's criteria here. And that's intentional Martin's part. As we noted in our previous John chapter, when the letter from Winterfell arrives, Mormont notes that John can read. And we're in early stages here, but perhaps Mormont's fears of who is going to lead the Night's Watch after his tenure in command are, are the colonels, which will blossom into John's upcoming assignment as the Lord Commander Stewart. But then we get a bit more direct foreshadowing of John becoming Lord Commander Snow when John tells Tyrion, quote, Tell Rob I am going to command the Night's Watch and keep him safe. So... That really reads that Martin is setting John's future role up here as the Lord Commander very strongly. These lines are intentional on Martin's part, and I think they're they're definitely there to set readers up for the the idea that Jon Snow is going to become the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch at the end of A Storm of Swords and on into A Dance of Dragons. The great question is whether he's going to be keeping his Lord Command when he returns to the Land of the Living at some point in The Winds of Winter, I think. Yeah, I'm sure Martin already had John as Lord Commander of the Night's Watch in mind. Like you say, the foreshadowing is pretty strong. And of course, this chapter sets up what his obstacles are going to be, the problems he's going to have to deal with his Lord Commander. And uh, he, uh, you know, obviously attempts to dance with dragons with varying degrees of success. But of course, one of the problems he's going to have to struggle with as Lord Commander is whether the, the Night's Watch genuinely lives up to its its meritocratic reputation. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's something that's there's a fair amount of evidence for both for and against on that question. We thought it would be uh, good to get into a, a little discussion of that here at the end of the episode. Yeah. So one of the things that's often said about the Night's Watch in universe and by the fan community is that in opposition to Westeros as a whole, it is a meritocratic organization that only puts the best men at to the jobs that that they are that they should be assigned to and that meritocracy that is seemingly brought up over and over again that a man gets his due here at the watch which is something that Benjamin Stark says is that actually true i i mean it starts to become true when Jon Snow becomes lord commander of the Night's Watch as we talked about earlier with the appointment of leathers to higher positions of command and the appointment of satin as his as a steward 
but here early on, who is at the, the pinnacle of the Night's Watch? We've got Sir Alistair Thorne, Sir Jamie Riker, Lord Commander Mormont, who was a former Lord of Bear Island. We've got Bowen Marsh, and Bowen Marsh might strike people as someone who is a just rose from the ranks, but the fact that he has a last name is interesting to me. Interesting to me in the sense that he likely perhaps comes from some minor nobility or perhaps an emerging middle class. You know, as we find in a Game of Thrones, or we've already found in a Game of Thrones, you have people like Jory Cassell, who is, you know, the House Cassell is... They're not necessarily nobles. They seem more like middle class, more of a kind of a northern, quote unquote, knightly class, even though the north doesn't have the tradition of knighthood there. So we have a lot of folks early on in the Game of Thrones into a clash of kings who are occupying positions of leadership at the Night's Watch due to their surname or due to the sir at the sir of their name. So is the Night's Watch as meritocratic as it's made out to be? I don't know. I I tend to say no, and we can talk a little bit more about why I say no, but I want to get your thoughts on it first, Emmett. To be fair to the Night's Watch, you do have things like separating them into the orders of the builders and the stewards and the rangers, a sense of multiple skills mattering and people getting to do what they do best, like Hot Pie when uh, the Brotherhood leaves him behind in the kitchen to do what he does best. <laughs> so, you know, there's... There's, there's a chance to do good work and move up within those ranks. Donald Noy mentioned Cotter Pike as a classic example of somebody doing so. There is the Night's Watch as a pan-Westeros institution with people from all over the continent, which was a thing even before Westeros was united into one single kingdom by the Targaryens. So that certainly gives a sense that this is kind of above and beyond the social stratification and divisions of Westeros. Elsie Mormont has that line about them being all one great house and that their, their crimes are wiped away when they get here, as are their family names. Maester Aemon says the same thing to Stannis in A Storm of Swords. On the other hand, though, yeah, you can see plenty of evidence that's not how the Night's Watch actually acts. You know, you have Alistair Thorne getting a prominent position simply because he's a knight. Waymar Royce, the same deal. Mormont putting him in charge of that not only because he was a knight, but because he wanted to please his powerful family. So right there you go, you see that the Night's Watch has not, in fact, escaped the clutch of Westerosi social structures. Yeah. And you see that just, you know, the fact that they have to beg someone like Joffrey for support, <laughs> or that they have to, you know, they have to work within the social structures of Westeros in order to get anything out of Westeros. And that I think that's indicative of how there's only so far a, a well intention structure within a larger exploitative structure can go. There's only so good the Night's Watch can be because it's implicated in how Westeros is arranged and you know, I think Mormont ultimately falls short in his recognition of that and that's one of the weaknesses that gets him killed. Yeah, you're absolutely right in that the Night's Watch outwardly and explicitly is intended as a kind of meritocratic, classless structure, but it's not necessarily. And we see that in this chapter where we get the reason why Sir Waymar Royce was sent north of the wall and on his first ranging in command of the first ranging. Uh, as Lord Commander Mormont says, quote, I sent Benjamin Stark to search after Jan Royce's son, lost on his first ranging. The Royce boy was as green as summer grass, yet he insisted on the honor of his own command, saying it was his due as a knight. I did not wish to offend his lord father, so I yielded. I sent him out with two men I deemed as good as any in the watch, more full eye. What that seems to be indicating is that people who come to the watch who have a certain status in life or have a certain birth have an assumed role of leadership there. There's no good reason for Waymar Royce to go north of the wall. He's 18 years old. It's his first ranging 
like I said, he's only 18 years old, so he most likely had only gotten his nightship within the past few years or so. You know, it's seen as a bit of – it's a huge outlier that someone like Sir Barristan Selmy gets to be knighted at the age of 13 or 14, I think. Waymar Royce likely was had only been knighted one, two, maybe three years at most years before he had come north to the Wall. Now, Lord Commander Mormont attempts to mitigate the risk of sending Waymar Royce north by sending two of his best men alongside of him. But as we're looking back at the prologue and looking at that command climate that was in – the in in that ranging north of the wall, the two men have to grudgingly obey the commands that Waymar Royce gives them, even though they know it's not for the best. The, the whole chapter starts with "We should start back" from the prologue, which is what Garrett says to Waymar, and Waymar basically dismisses him and says, "You know, we're not going to go back. That's we have we have a command here. On my first ranging, I will not go back empty-handed." And that really speaks in my mind to that whole structure in Westeros, where you have. The two best people who should have been leading the want, leading the ranging in that first ranging, that is Will or Garrett, should have been in command, but they're not. In fact, they, it's Waymar Royce who's in command. And Waymar Royce, again, he goes out like a badass at the end of the chapter, but he didn't have to go out like a badass. The fact that he dies at the end of the chapter was because he wasn't a very good commander. In fact, he was a shitty commander for that little ranging that went north of the wall. So when we're talking about the Night's Watch, and we're we're seeing this whole idea that it's a, a a place where you know your your crimes are washed out. You start fresh. There is a sense that that is true, and that you have criminals. You have some of them are class criminals. Some of them are actual criminals, as we're we're finding out when you know John comes north with his his uncle, and he's with a couple of rapers that are taking the um, the Night's Watch vows instead of. Um, being castrated or being executed by by the lords that that sent him up from the fingers, that exists. But at the same time, there is a ceiling for those that don't have the correct birth. At least there's a ceiling early on here, where those that are of the more small folk variety are, are relegated to positions of being um, minions on behalf of those who are born to a higher station of life than than they were. Yeah, I mean, you see that. Mormont, the way Mormont lays it out, that Will and Garrett were basically babysitters for Waymar Royce. Right. That they were there kind of to keep him safe, that he wasn't worthy of the command. And it's that logic that got all three of them killed. Yeah. Uh, Garrett, you know, lasted longer than the other two, but still got him killed. And that that really gets at the heart of what's wrong about the class structure of Westeros, like you said, and then how that has infected even the Night's Watch, the organization that's supposed to be above all that and supposed to protect the realm as a whole. Even it is is not free of that corruption, yeah. and that's something that John is going to have to deliberately wrestle with, and that we see him wrestle with over the course of Storm and Dance. And it's an open question whether Tyrion is going to choose to wrestle with that as well. He takes some steps in that direction over the course of the series, especially, I would argue, in this first book. But he's in a much darker place as of a dance with dragons, so one of the great questions for Tyrion going forward is whether he's going to internalize the weaknesses that are exposed to him here and try to do something about them. Or whether he's going to ultimately join those power structures and end up like his father. And I think that's that's going to be something we're going to watch for over the course of Tyrion chapters to come. So, absolutely. So like we talk about in previous chapters, there is an inherent critique in A Song of Ice and Fire of the feudal structure that these people are occupying in the story. 
And that critique extends to an organization like the Night's Watch. It also extends to organizations like the Kingsguard as well, as we're going to be talking about, especially in A Clash of Kings, where these folks are not necessarily the best people for the job, but they've been put there for various reasons that are not congruent with their whether they're the best knight or the best soldier or the best protector of the king. So that, I think, closes us out for A Game of Thrones Tyrion 3. Thank you, everyone, for listening to us, and thank you so much for those of you who have kindly contributed and donated on our behalf to our Patreon. And yeah, it's it's been a great. I hope, hope you guys have enjoyed this episode. Yes, indeed. Check us out, as always, on iTunes and SoundCloud and Google Play, etc. Uh, rate and review us on iTunes. We always check those out. Yes. You can find us on social media at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Or uh, send us an email at notacastasoif at gmail.com. Personally speaking, you can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter or at poorquentin.tumblr.com. And you can find me at Brendan B. Fish on Twitter. And you can find me on Reddit at Brendan B. Fish. And my website is warsandpoliticsoficeandfire.wordpress.com. If you have not signed up for our Patreon, check it out at patreon.com forward slash notacastasoif. Our latest episode is on the endgame of Stannis Baratheon. Uh, so if you sign up for our Patreon at $5 or above, you can get access to those special episodes. Absolutely. And uh, that'll be a fun episode to be recording. I think we're doing that in a few days. And we can't wait for you guys to listen to that and to listen to this episode, too. So thank you again. Join us next time as we return to King's Landing and get one of the most touching scenes in all of A Song of Ice and Fire with the Game of Thrones Arya 2. Man, I love that scene with her and Ned. It's one of my favorites in all, all the books. As do I, sir. I'm looking forward to it. Catch you folks next time. Bye.